Alfred E. Newman, the cartoon character from the 60s and 70s of Mad Magazine fame, famous for his freckled face and loopy grin and his mantra, what, me worry? When I read this passage, I wonder if Jesus is channeling Alfred E. Newman. Don't be anxious about your body. A friend of mine went to the doctor whose annual physical simply circled his weight and looked at him and said, lose weight or die. Hey, don't worry about your body. Just saying. And who will watch out for my diet, what I put into myself? Four basic food groups, that's long gone. Kind of enjoyed eating the whole pyramid. <laughs> and now it's, it's a plate. Reminded of my brother-in-law's diet, he calls it, if it tastes good, spit it out diet. And if you have a pain, don't take Advil. It'll kill you. Maybe that's why they call it a painkiller. I don't know. <laughs> and, and don't worry about tomorrow. I love you, but I don't see anybody here contributing to my 401k. Or about the college education of my grandchildren or who will help us care for relatives in poor health. And don't worry, I mean, when I'm struggling with the demons inside of me trying to keep them at bay, or when I'm struggling with a relationship just trying to hold it together, and don't worry. Or pick an issue, ISIS, Soviet expansionism, the shrinking middle class, global climate change, droughts, floods, and county clerks. Or maybe just more personally, waiting for the doctor to call with your lab results. But Jesus is not Alfred E. Newman. He comes offering a bold word of change to people whose lives are contained and controlled and ordered by a foreign power. They are people who have been culturally raped, who have seen their babies murdered by one so fearful of a rebel leader that he feared he might be hiding out among the two-year-olds. And since they all look alike when they're wearing diapers, let's just kill all of them. There are people who keep their heads down and their eyes looking at the ground to hide their fury and their grief and their impotence. with such poison inside them. Their religion has degenerated to piety by rules and by gender and by class and by privilege. And they quietly seethe with a desire for war. Violence and vengeance are never far from their minds. And violence and vengeance are the condiments of the devil's brew. And along comes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' centerpiece of teaching, emphasizing these beatitudes as inner piety of mourning and mercy and meekness. 
That wasn't what they sought. And while I'm here to praise it, I'm not certain it's what I've ever really sought. I often hear, have a blessed day. Never have I heard, have a meek day. Blessed are you when you are reviled. I've never heard anybody say, have a reviling day. I memorized these Beatitudes. I could recite them. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. But I laughed at the comic Jackie Vernon who once said, the meek shall inherit the earth because they won't have the nerve to refuse it. I'm waiting for Coach Cal or Coach P to recruit a player and announce that we got this one because he's meek. I'll try this in a job interview. What are your long-term goals? I really want to become a meeker person. But what Jesus is pointing us to here is really salvation. And I really don't like to use churchy words. They've been worn smooth and lost their impact. But it's about wholeness and inward healing that shows throughout. It's just, it's just being saved from sin. Not sins, small s, plural, but sin, capital S, singular, the big deal. The question Jesus brings to us is not, did you get all the rules right, but did you get what rules your life right? Not some false piety that says, if you really, really, really have faith, you'll never, ever worry. And God forbid you should get an ulcer that tells on you. But a calling to a devotion of service for others of living your life in in this direction of wholeness. I have a friend, been my friend over 40 years now. Mary Helen and I watched him and his wife as she descended into Alzheimer's, watched her deteriorate. The time came when he's well past 80 years of age when he had to take the option that none of us ever really want, and that was to place her in a nursing home. But he went every day to read to her, to sit with her. Every day he rubbed lotion on her feet. A year after her death, I sat across the lunch table from him, and he told me he worried. He worried had he been faithful enough, had he been a good husband. Hold on to that. A couple of years ago, I talked to a young couple that nobody here knows about their marriage. Premarital counseling, I always have a session where we talk about spirituality and faith, and I gave them some questions to think about ahead of time that we would talk about next time. And two of those questions were, how well do I, how much, or who do I love? What do I love? I'll get my questions right in a moment. What do I love? besides each other. What do I love? And how well do I love? They came back the next week and sat down, and I said, well, do you have a chance to talk about the questions? 
And she launched into the voice of a whiny sixth grader hoping to get out of the homework that's been assigned. She said, these are hard. Was I a good enough husband? Was I faithful? Jesus is talking about worrying about the things that matter. What's your focus? What's my bottom line? Several years ago, in teaching Sunday school class, before the renovation up here in the southeast corner of the second floor, something had happened, something ugly and mean-spirited by some politician. They said something or did something about gay and lesbian people, and I was mad. And I don't hide that very well. And I sounded off about it in class. And others kind of joined that chorus. But then there was one man who spoke up, and I realized later what he said was also a rebuke to me. He said, I will not allow anyone to make me hate. What's your bottom line? What's your focus? Jesus calls us to discover this kind of wisdom that's born of heart and spirit and mind and experience. Discover what really matters. There's a wonderful book called The Book Thief. There's a wonderful movie called The Book Thief. And there's a character in it named Papa. And I like Papa because that's what my grandkids call me. Papa's an older man in baggy, worn clothing. It's kind to describe him as rumpled. But in the late 30s, early 40s in Germany, a German citizen he is, but Papa will not join the Nazi party. He's told if he'd just join, they could have some work for him, he could make some money, he could have a living but he won't. And at his door one day, there's a young man asking for refuge. He's the son of the man who saved Papa's life in the First World War, and Papa told that man if he ever needed anything. Well, now he needed something. He needed refuge for his Jewish son, someplace safe from the Nazis. But to take this young man in is to risk discovery and being shot. To take this man in is to share food that you don't have. Is to enter a life of worrying all the time about saying the right words in the right tone and and not being discovered. But he takes him in. And they adopt a little girl, the one who's called the book thief. First book she ever stole was the gravedigger's manual. Fell out of the gravedigger's pocket at her brother's grave. She can't read it. But in some of the gentlest scenes you'll ever see, he teaches her how to read and opens up this world for her. In what is arguably one of the most evil times in human history, the time of Nazi Germany. He is one who chooses to live by justice and by mercy and by kindness. 
Did he worry? If he had a brain, he worried. But he worried about the right things. And in verse 26, Jesus says, Are you not more valuable than, than they? You seethe over the Roman oppression and the religious failure, but you need to see yourselves differently, not victims searching for vengeance, but see yourselves as one in whom God delights. You see the birds of the air. God delights in you more than you delight in them. You see the flowers. You see their beauty. God sees the beauty in you. See, ask us to not allow our problems to define us, but to allow ourselves to be defined by this God. Several years ago, when I was taking my clinical training, my clinical supervisor, James Pollard, honestly, often he said things that were, I thought, kind of bizarre, but he was my supervisor. And one day he told us he really, truly believed that whenever we're under great stress, God sends somebody to love us. And in my mind, I made a little check mark by the column that says naive. But then I began to notice, because I work with people in dire straits all the time, and it always seemed like somebody did show up to love them. Now, this is not a scientific sample. I can't prove it, but it seemed like there was an awful lot of it. And slowly... It dawned, everything dawned slowly on me. But slowly it dawned on me, the question is, if God sends somebody to love somebody in distress, then to whom am I sent? But to ask that question means that I have to see myself as valuable to God, as loved of God. I know a 10-year-old boy lives on a farm in central Kentucky, large family, 11 children, terrible health issues. Two of those children are buried on the farm. This 10-year-old boy's sister has the same illness they had, and she's tethered to oxygen. This particular day, we decided we would go down the little country lane to visit the graves, about a half a mile. We were going to walk. She wanted to go, and her mother says, okay, she's having a good day. She can walk, but you've got to take your oxygen. And so it's loaded onto this little hand cart with wheels, and she's pulling her oxygen down the road, and she's excited, and she doesn't watch closely enough, and she hits a rock, and the wheels break off of what carries her oxygen. Without a word, that 10-year-old boy picked up the oxygen and started carrying it. Carrying a canister of oxygen for half a mile is not high on my list of things to do. But it struck me that to do that, he had to see himself as strong enough to do it. And he had to see his sister as someone he wanted to do it for. Here's a boy 
whose soul is being forged in the crucible of terrible grief and coping with chronic illness in his sister, fearful he'll lose her too, I doubt that he's ever said, I love you to her. He's 10 years old. 10-year-old boys don't say such things to their sisters. But he didn't see her as the crabgrass in his lawn. He saw himself differently, and he saw her differently. You know, we spend so much energy protecting our treasures that rust and can be stolen, holding on to our power. Someone once wrote that nobody ever gives up power without a fight, and we'll soon be in the midst of the political campaign, inundated with campaign slogans that will prove that. But what if we dared? Fifteen-year-old girl, brain tumor, past treatment. But she told her mother she was afraid. Afraid God wouldn't take her into heaven. Because she didn't believe the literal creation story her Catholic church preached. She just couldn't buy that. And so didn't think she'd be good enough. In the Catholic tradition, the anointing of the sick is an important sacrament. And so the priest was called. And in Catholic teaching, the priest is one who traces himself back even to Jesus. And so in that thought, he is literally Jesus, the Holy One of God, right there. This priest came in and he said to the little girl, God spoke to me and I am not to anoint you. You're the Holy One. I came to ask you to anoint me. And he held out the chalice of oil and she dipped her finger and made the sign of the cross on his forehead and pronounced the sacred words in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then repeated it four times for younger brother and older brother and mother and father. And that which is a ritual done thousands of times a day across this country became one of the most sacred things I've ever heard in one of the most difficult times. Pretty sure the priest broke some rules. Pretty sure it's not about the rules. I think Jesus tells us it's about what rules us. Amen. It's our tradition, our opportunity, as we sing, to think about where we're going in life and who we're going with.
It's our joy as a church to say the doors are open. This time symbolically they're open, but they're always open. If you'd like to join us on the journey, seeking the Jesus to rule us, you come please and become part of us. We stand together to sing.